0: Well, our ramble meets this week as a goalkeeper capped 82 times by England and once by Great Britain. She played for both Liverpool and Everton, won the FA Cup with the latter. And her natural curiosity and desire to broaden her mind has taken her to Alabama... Pittsburgh and Iceland as well to play and study. Now a television pundit and still very connected with the sporting world on many levels welcome Rachel Brown Finnis. Rachel, I hope you're well. I feel like you're about to homeschool me with everything that's over your uh, over your shoulders, but how's it all going with with the pandemic and with your kids?
1: Very well, thanks Mark. It's uh, as you said, I've got I'm surrounded by phonics uh, posters and pictures of mermaids that have been coloured in uh, by my daughter who's just started reception uh, my little one two, who's two and a half uh, he's still going into nursery so that provides some relief but you know it's all about ad- adapting isn't it and survival and that's what our race has always been about so uh, yeah it's just cracking on we're lucky that we've got outside space garden climbing frame beach just across there so we're making the most and we're, we're not shy of the weather here
0: Absolutely. Um, and of course, you've got the added, not complication, but reality that and we can see what you're wearing there in your gilet, the Masters uh, logo, that your husband Ian is Tommy Fleetwood's caddy. So he's away at the moment as well. I mean, you're both used to the other being away over over the time you've known each other, but particularly in a pandemic, you haven't got daddy around much as well at the moment.
1: Yeah, and him swanning around in the sunshine, <laughs> you know, saying how, how hard it is because it's so hot doesn't always, uh, sit easy with me, but, uh, no, he's, 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 you know, it was a chance of a lifetime when he took this job on and I fully support him. And of course, as, uh, you know, it, it's, it does become a little bit more difficult logistically. Uh, thankfully I've got his mum just around the corner. Who's, uh, very keen to help out with uh, the children to help me be able to work. So, you know, I found a great little support team. And so, uh, I'm very thankful for that. And, yeah, we we make things work.
0: Well, brilliant. Well, I I know that having worked with you so often, you do that fantastically. You talk about Ian's mum. Let's go back to the beginning. What about your own family growing up? Did you come from a football family, as it were?
1: I'd say a sporty family, uh, not a football family at all. Um, They weren't actively opposed to football. They just had no interest in it. I grew up in Burnley. Uh, My parents still live in the same house that they always have done, just five minutes up the road from Turf Moor. uh, So we could hear the games, we could hear the fans, you know, from our garden. um, uh, And it's very much part of the town. Um, But my dad was a a swimmer and a a fell runner. Uh, Everything kind of, uh, being active was a really big part of growing up. We'd always go on camping holidays and be riding bikes and scrambling about on mountains. But no, football was never, certainly never part of what we did until... I suppose the first memory I have uh, was Burnley getting to the, the uh, very much coveted Sherpa Van Trophy final um, back in 1988, I think it was, and as an eight-year-old and my younger brother as a six-year-old uh, hopped on the train with my mum and dad, along with, I'd say, the majority of the um, of the town of Burnley, to go down to London, which in itself was a huge adventure, uh, and, you know, had caps on and the, the scarves. And I remember, vividly remember walking down Wembley Way and just being surrounded by fans of, uh, you know, with Clarence Blue, we were playing Wolves that day. Uh, so the colours were amazing. And I think that is what stays with more than anything, was the noise. It was the old Wembley, so it was a, more than 100,000 capacity. Uh, the excitement, not really knowing what was going on on the pitch, but that that real swell of excitement that was I think probably like my light bulb moment where I thought I want some more of this and, and whether that was going to be on the pitch, I wasn't sure whether it was going to be, you know, just following Burnley or football. I wasn't sure, but it lit that, that excitement for me. Um, And so, yeah, from then on, uh, I started to um, dive around in the playground. I think I always had that streak of adventure in me uh, that that kind of uh, sense of not really having much thought for my own welfare and safety. And I think goalkeeping goes hand in hand with, with that kind of, that, uh, that not loose cannon, but you know, I, I loved mountain biking and I'd just go flying down hills and not think about what might happen. And I can imagine there are a lot of kind of quite scary, hairy moments for my parents uh, from an early age. Um, I always did gymnastics as well growing up, always swam um, regularly, you know, before school. And so, you know, fitness was a big part of, of my family, but it was certainly that was the turning point. You know, football for me became kind of everything. I loved it. Uh, you know, you back in the day of having four channels on the telly and, and living for kind of match of the day. And, uh, and those snippets of football, you know, it's all around us everywhere. Um, that you can consume it in any way you want nowadays. It was very different back then. Um, But, yeah, I always felt I was going to be a goalkeeper. Um, That kind of mentality, I suppose, you needed fitted with my character. Simple as that.
0: It's amazing when you mention it there, Rachel, because I'm a lot older than you, but you know that. You're too polite to say so. Last Sunday, there were more live matches on Sunday alone alone than in the whole of a football season when I was growing up, where there's basically the FA Cup final and a couple of England matches. I mean, it's it's incredible. Growing up in Burnley as well, I think, because Burnley is such one of those special places where everybody in Burnley, all right, 95% of people in Burnley support Burnley. There are very few towns like that. Newcastle will be another one, to be fair, isn't it? Which means I think you... Once you're cognizant of it or you get a real sense of what a football club can mean to a community. And it, it sounds like you, you latched onto that walking up Wembley way and seeing your, your whole town there.
1: Very much so. Um, it, it was uh, here uh, and so in the newspaper um, around the time that, you know, it was a ghost town that weekend because everyone had literally gone down to, to Wembley um, and, you know, it Supporting Burnley has absolutely been at the heart of it. And as you said, they're a huge part of the community. It's what everybody talks about. There's, you know, being honest, there's not much, not too much else going on in the town to get excited about. And, you know, we rolling back to 1988 and those early days, even the football wasn't anything to get particularly excited about. I and mean, I think we just survived uh, the season um, of going out the Football League. And, uh, it, you know, it was, At times, hard watching, Division 3, Division 2. I remember going to um, playoffs when they started to exist. Uh, In my early teens, we went to a playoff final at Wembley, and that was so exciting. I think I was 13. uh, But I think that was to maybe go up to the lofty heights of the championship, potentially. So it wasn't wasn't the glamour of the Premier League as it is now. And I'm not saying everyone's jumping on the bandwagon, because clearly they're not, but... I think Burnley fans support their team through thick and thin because they are absolutely at the heart of the community. Um, And I, you know, I got the chance later on to actually work physically in the club for a a university, UCFB, uh, which are now based at Wembley and other football stadiums. uh, And to see really the reach and the, the strength of football, how it, impacts on literally the doorstep of the community, the doorstep of Turf Moor. It just makes me, I guess, prouder and prouder of the club that I've grown up to love
0: and and people for our younger listeners they, they might have clocked so the Sherpa Van Trophy was sort of like a, a third and fourth tier FA Cup and of course you just said they were playing Wolves so it just shows keep on dreaming because of course Wolves and, uh, and Burnley now both in the Premier League so you always say you wanted to be a goalkeeper when you were growing up the FA banned mixed gender teams did that make it difficult at some stage to find a team to play for I mean girls football thankfully today it's great you want to play you're a girl not a problem I think you'll find a team near you but that wasn't necessarily the case once upon a time.
1: No, you're absolutely right, Mark, because uh, as I started to take an interest and start to play in the primary school, my teacher, Mr Lombard, the P- PE teacher, um, he took a bit of persuading uh, initially to let me go and do PE with the boys, um, which was a precursor to them playing in the school football team. Uh, once he did let me go and uh, play on the playing fields just down the road from my primary school, Um you know, he, he realized that I loved it and that you know I was doing all right. So I played for the boys' football team. I then joined a, a Sunday League boys team called Bank Hall United um, and played for them in goal. But then you're right, when I got to secondary school, got there, no girls' team, and I couldn't play mixed football. So I, for a year at least I played no football whatsoever, other than on the the, the uh, playground at secondary school. Um, I remember going training. There was this uh, newfangled um, AstroTurf that was built just down the, the road, um, and there was a boys' team that let me train with them. So I'd go down, and I think it was Leighton James, who used to play for Burnley. His son was in the team in this boys' team, and I think it was the Bankall team that rolled over to the kind of secondary school age, and they let me come and train with them. Uh, So that was something, but I didn't play for a team probably. I think it was, I was definitely in year eight and it was partway through and I actually had to join a women's team. So at that point at the age of 12 and being about seven stone and probably about five foot two, uh, I joined Accrington Stanley Ladies. Uh, And so, yeah, it was quite a a leap of faith. Um, I remember that first ever game that I played in and we were playing against Crew Robbins, uh, goodness knows what tier we were both playing in. Uh, but I remember my mum saying to me after the match that she thought I might die at some point uh, as I went flying down at the feet of, you know, a 30-odd-year-old seasoned kind of tier 12 player. Um, and, you know, it just it didn't ever cross my mind that that might be not a brilliant thing to do. Uh, it was really exciting. I loved it. And that's the thrill of being a goalkeeper. But it could have been a barrier. It could have been, you know, that I didn't have a girls team to play for. Uh, and again, I kind of persuaded my, my PE teacher um, at Secondary School. She was, um, enjoyed football. She played volleyball as well. And, and with kind of my mutual love for it and hers, we fought, formed a girls team at the school. So at least I had kind of regular game time in those early days when certainly not all Secondary Schools had girls football teams. We had that. Um, but then playing for Accrington Stanley week in, week out, we weren't very good. Um, I remember we lost that game 6-0. And I remember a few games on, we lost 12-0 and I got player of the match in that one. So, I, I mean, my <sighs> advice to any young goalkeeper is play for a really rubbish team and you get loads of practice.
0: You get lots of practice. And then <laughs> how, how did you, how easily did you persuade your parents, age 12 or 13, that you wanted to go to the great Bob Wilson's football school, soccer school, goalkeeping school in London. How easy was it to persuade them to do that?
1: Well, I feel like any young uh, footballer at that age, they probably got Match Magazine, one of the few football magazines you could get at the time. And, you know, I'd read it cover to cover every single week. And in the back, there's an advert, advert for uh, Bob Wilson's goalkeeper camp. Uh, and it was a residential camp in uh, over the Easter holidays. And uh, I thought that how amazing would that be to go and to, to work with other goalkeepers, to be coached as a goalkeeper. Um, and so, you know, I, I bugged them and promised it would be, you know, my Christmas presents for the next five years, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it never, I was never deterred by the fact that it was going to be in London, that it was going to be residential. It was just, a, the only thing I could see was it was goalkeeper training and it was a goalkeeper camp. And what better, holiday to go on than to just go and be a goalie for five days. Uh, so, you know, they, they agreed and took me down. Uh, and so, yeah, arrived at this big boarding school that was obviously empty over the Easter holidays that they used for, to, to house all of us goalkeepers. And, you know, as parents kept leaving, you know, uh, leaving kind of their, their children for this camp, um, I was kind of looking around and thinking, um, all right, there's um, kind of can't see any other girls here. And uh, I think the lads were sort of looking round at me because I think the goalies, the youngest were maybe like eight or nine, and it was all the way up to adults, eighteen-year-olds on there. I think they were looking around and thinking, "Why is someone's sister still hanging around? You know, come on, get on the road, sort of thing." Uh, and it was, you know, I had that initial sinking feeling, but then I thought, you know, it's this still all the things where I was buzzing about it just rose to the surface, and it was, it was. I feel it was such a positive thing to do because, and I feel like it's replicated a lot of situations and scenarios moving forwards, you know, an uncomfortable situation. Well, get on with it because either leave or just get on with it. And, uh, you know, those first kind of sit down lunches that we had and the lads were not quite sure really how to speak to me or who to, you know, whether to kind of say, come and sit with us or it was a bit uncomfortable, but you know, as soon as we got out on the pitch and I was uh, with my coach Mick Payne, um, who I'm still good friends with today, um, he treated me like a goalkeeper and that's all I kind of asked for. didn't treat me any different to any of the lads um, and really that chance I took um, to kind of want to get better, it provided so many opportunities moving forwards
0: was was that the was that the 5 days do you think the turning point which went from Rachel loves her football she likes being a goalie to actually Rachel saying I want to be a goalkeeper
1: uh, I think part of that dropped when everything that they did the the training sessions the technical sessions I felt like I was really excelling at them and really kind of at, loving every minute of it because you got to understand there was not really any goalkeeper coaching, and I wasn't really part of a team. Um, and certainly, there was no infrastructure, there were no centres of excellence, uh, no way of talent necessarily being picked up at a young age in women's football at that time. So, as much as it, it reinforced how much I loved being a goalie, what it did do, they were able to signpost me then to other teams. So, uh, my coach McPain sat down with me at the end and uh, said, look, you should be playing at a higher level than what you're doing. Um, We're going to find out who to get in contact with. Ultimately, they got in contact with Sylvia Gore, who was, um, I think, head of Liverpool County FA and was involved at Liverpool Football Club, who were in the top division. Um, I think this was either first or second year I went to Bob Wilson's um, and uh, got me in touch with them and got me a trial there. So in the summer of being, because I turned 15 in the July, Um, I was 14, went on trial at Liverpool, uh, signed in that summer and uh, I wouldn't have got that opportunity had I not gone to Bob Wilson's goalkeeper camp. We'll talk about
0: playing in goal age 15 for Liverpool in the FA Cup final itself. Rachel, what what did your friends say all this? I think today... No one would bat an eyelid. You know, you, you girls play football as much as they can play hockey or, you know, sing, art, play cricket, whatever. But let's be honest, slightly different in 1992, 93. What did your friends say?
1: I think they just, they maybe thought it was a bit. I, I don't know what they thought. They've always just seen me as Rachel the footballer. Um, it was never kind of, I was never seen to be an oddity. I might have been the only one, but I never. I never felt an outsider. I never felt not part of it. I never felt out of uh, kind of your usual cliques and groups of friends that you have at school. Um, And so the lads always accepted me playing football in the yard. Um, So, you know, there was, there was never kind of any opposition to what I did. It was only real support. Um, And certainly at school, when it came to, that time when in in the end of the first season uh, that I was doing my GCSEs, um, that I went down to London to play in the FA Cup final for Liverpool. After starting the season not expecting to feature at all and then just before the season started, the England goalkeeper who was there at the time decided she was going to retire. So a newly turned 15-year-old, thrown in very much at the deep end. Uh, I remember playing my first ever game for Liverpool. It was against Arsenal at Anfield. Arsenal had just won the league. Players had just come back from the World Cup. And I was I, was surra- I didn't even know there was an England women's team until I joined in pre-season at, at Liverpool. And I uh, was thinking, we're a bit thin on the ground here. There's only about eight players at pre-season training. And then a week later, about 12 players arrived back and they'd all suntanned and they'd been in the World Cup in Sweden. And I genuinely had no clue there was an England team until that point. Um, so fast forward a year and playing in that FA Cup final, balancing my GCSEs. It was a bit surreal, but you know, I loved it, and I knew I had to do well at school because that's my mum's a teacher. um,
0: (sighs) That was the that was the deal, was it? Well, that was the deal, was it? You can play football, but carry on working hard.
1: Honestly, it was the best bargaining tool ever. Having football, you know, a number of times I got grounded for doing things, and it was like you can go out during the week, but you can't go out on a Saturday or Sunday if you're grounded. And I was like, football, I'm missing football, and so that you know, anything I was thinking I might want to do wrong or, you know, all the usual stuff as a 14, 15, 16 year old, it quickly made sense to just toe the line. I remember my head teacher at secondary school was awesome with um, helping me organize my days. Cause at this point, you know, from Burnley, I was traveling to Liverpool twice a week, midweek traveling the country at weekends um, and he organized a revision timetable for me which I still remember to this day was the most powerful organizational tool I could have ever wished for which meant that I could still enjoy my football and do well at that but also organized me for doing well at my exams and I've kind of used that organizational principle as if you've got half an hour do something in it don't just sit there and let it while away uh, this morning, I uh, had 45 minutes in between dropping the kids off and uh, and a Zoom meeting at 10. I was like, right, I'm going to go out and do a power walk because that's all my body's capable of now. Uh, but I did it, you know, because I had that time. So those principles have been ground into me. And
0: and obviously the principles of academia were ground into by your mum, as you say, being a teacher. So in 1998, so you're now 18 and you've played for Liverpool in the cup final already, you go to the USA and... Um, is that as much... I, I'm guessing there are lots of different reasons for going at, at that age, were there? What, what were well, they? Well, the, the,
1: main, the main one was uh, that contact Mick Payne from the Bob Wilson's goalkeeper camp. We kept in touch. Uh, in between my GCSE years in college that summer, he said, why don't you come out on a goalie camp, uh, coaching camp in the US that I run? He's been going out for various summers running it. Uh, so I, I went out, flew out on my own as a 15-year-old. Um, went to... Was getting picked up by a guy called Ron Buffington. That's all I knew from um not, not, not
0: Ron Burgundy, but almost yeah
1: <laughs> well it was before google i couldn't even yeah. google what alabama was really. uh, but i stayed with a host family again never met them before just kind of showed up at their door um and so stayed with them for that six weeks during the summer and um worked on this camp loved it and uh all, I didn't know, but I was training with a, a girls' team as well over there, the daughter of the family I was staying with, played for the team. I just went along and did some training sessions. I think I played one game, the Alabama Angels. And um, I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about the college system for a start, um, but I was scouted apparently in that one outing that I, I played in. And uh, so within the next six months of coming back from that summer, I started getting letters through my door and, um, from the University of Alabama, Mississippi State, University of Mississippi, and this whole new kind of world of possibility opened up. Um, And so, yeah, that is how that opportunity came about. Uh, So at 18, packed my bags, mum and dad dropped me off at the airport, and off I went to Alabama.
0: Well, we can tell you're very adventurous, and you and you always were, um, and and you're very intelligent, and you want to broaden your mind, and you absorb of what's going on around you, which meant that you found it. I don't want to put words in your mouth. In, increasingly difficult in Alabama because of it's the Deep South, uh, the the racial prejudice, the the religious hypocrisy. It just describe your two years there.
1: I think it was probably a good thing that I didn't or couldn't Google what what you know, anything about the place because I didn't have no preconceptions about it and no prejudgments on, on anything that had gone before. Uh, I literally arrived with, you know, another 18 new recruits um, in the freshman year as it was. And um, you know, loved the heat of Alabama. It was it was uh, all completely new and different. Training sessions, different environment, and found out about the history of the university. It's you know, 120,000 seats a stadium for American football and all the history that goes with that. But along with that, as, as I as you rightly said, when um, once I actually physically lived there and you know, appreciated the culture, appreciated the day to day environment, and you go along those surface kind of Uh, niceties and positives that come with being able to play football every day, which was not a a realistic option in in England at that time for a female footballer. Um, I guess there were things that weren't too great about it. Um, It was very much uh, steeped in racism. It was only, I think, one generation away at that time from um, segregation from um, different toilets, different schools, P- uh, people couldn't sit on the same buses. And, and I felt that was far too apparent still in day-to-day life at that time. Uh, you know, it seemed like I remember trying to get a taxi because I didn't drive and everyone seemed to drive, nobody seemed to walk anywhere. And I tried to get a taxi from my apartment uh, to go to my lessons and um, the taxi driver came around, he was African-American and he circled round past me, looked at me and I was like, kind of, yeah, it's me, it's me. And he circled around again and I was like, yeah, it's me. And he, he drove off and um, I rang the taxi company and they said, oh, he's um, been called on another on another call, ma'am. And I was like, okay, that's a bit weird. So I actually saw him. Anyway, it happened three days in a row and I kind of, I thought I need to ask someone. And uh, And that's, they explained to me that, you know, that that was the situation that some people still felt really strongly about um, white people having uh, huge privileges in comparison to African-American people in that area. And that's just how it was. And, you know, having grown up in, in Burnley, which is quite multicultural and um, you know, I had friends at college who who come from different backgrounds, from different races, religions, and just wasn't an issue. And certainly in football, you know, friends of, again, different races, different backgrounds, different religions. And, you know, it was just a non, it didn't mean anything. Um, so that's, I start to, as I found in future um, encounters and in my life and my Character, character, I like to challenge these things. Uh, and I was not happy to accept that that was okay, um you know, both from African American people towards white people, and, and obviously vice versa, because it's a, a deeper, steep problem than something I could fix at that time. So I decided that after two years and. You Rachel, know, sorry,
0: I, did you find this within the team as well? Was there a no. racial divide in the team?
1: Not at all, no. Um, within the team, there was, it was great because I could chat to my teammates about these things and they could educate me on them and how how they felt about it, obviously, because um, it's it's something that had been around for so long, which, you know, I was very naive in, in not having any knowledge of that.
0: Yeah, cuz we should say is uh, Rosa Parks was the famous lady who refused to give up her seat on the bus. That was Montgomery, Alabama, and that was in December 1955. As you said, it's only a generation removed from what, you know, when you were there at the end of uh, at the end of the
1: 1990s. The buses waited still and lonely in their silent rows, or rode empty through the streets. They were threatened and intimidated, arrested, convicted and fined, and still they walked. In the rain and the sun and the dark of night, they walked with God and shunned the buses. They walked with God and they rode with God too, for they formed a carpool that was a marvel of quick organization. A network of cars, old and new, of trucks and taxis, reached out across the city and carried people where they wanted to go. You know, there were certain churches that were black churches and there were certain sororities and fraternities where only you know, African-American people would go and certain sororities and fraternities where only white people would go. And I, I just couldn't get my head around how, you know, that just didn't make sense to me uh, for any kind of progressive community. That just doesn't make sense at all. So, yeah, it, it was, I mean, it's probably one of the, the states where it, it was probably still most of parents, you know, Mississippi, Alabama, probably still have those uh, traditions, um, but it just didn't sit easy. And, you know, I've, I also have a firm belief that if you can't do something about something, then don't worry about it. But I could do something about it and I could move away from that because I didn't want another two years of a four-year uh, qu- qualification degree uh, to really feel uncomfortable about it. So, yeah, that's when uh, after two years and, you know, my career at, at Alabama had been successful. I'd won, I'd got All-American all status. I'd won Goalkeeper of the Year. I'd, you know, broken records for um, University of Alabama. And I still have a real affinity with the University of Alabama and my friends that I made there. Uh, but it was just the right thing for me to do, to move on. Uh, having wanted uh, a career, uh, the opportunity to go out to America, I wanted my university Uh, experience not to be negative or to be soured so I made a a pledge to to change it and I did and I moved to the University of Pittsburgh up in the northeast uh, a lot more kind of European influence Um, but I tell you what the the overall effect of having gone to America I got the chance in 99 to go with my best mate from Alabama as a birthday present to the women's world cup final we flew up her mum and dad bought us tickets uh, to fly up to the Rose Bowl in California and watch. So I'm a current England national at this point. We hadn't qualified for the World Cup because we weren't very good. And um, flew up to the Rose Bowl in California, watched that game. And I'm sat there in the stands watching that Brandy Chastain moment where she whips off her shirt and shows a sports bar after um, after scoring a winning penalty. Uh, it on every newspaper, you know, 90,000 people at the Rose Bowl. And I'm thinking oh my God, I want this for my sport back in England. Like this is so far removed from how women's football is perceived in, in, in England. You know, I'm flying back every month to go and play for England. And, you know, you kind of almost go in a downgraded version compared to a university game. And um, that's when it made me really determined to do everything I could to change women's football in England Um, And, you know, I'm really proud to have been a part of, I guess, that group of players who've gone from women's football being part-time or not even part-time, nothing, uh, not qualifying for major tournaments to leaving it really where it is now. Chastain will take it.
0: She missed a penalty kick against China in the Algarve Cup and they lost that game. You'd played for England. You've gone to America. You're still playing for England when you're in America. You have that sort of Damascene moment watching the World Cup final. What was the turning point for English uh, women's football when you came back from the States where you thought, right, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're on the right road.
1: Yeah, well, there were a couple of players, me and Kelly Smith, who were out in America at that time. And I think both of us saw what we saw and came back feeling 100% more determined to make us individually better but also to pass on like women's football is massive in America. We needed to get the same for, for, um, in England. So we pass on our, you know, what we've seen, what we heard to people at the FA and eventually we got people at board level and at, um, influential level to listen. Um, probably that, that change, the real kind of, where you can actually put a marker in and say, okay, women's football has changed, is when we qualified for the World Cup in 2007. Prior to that, 2005, we hosted the Euros um, and we the, the crowds that showed up were unprecedented. So that was definitely a moment where we saw that there was a potential for change. Um, but then for us to continue that ascendancy, um, you know, with the markers being of success, qualifying for the World Cup was something we'd never done before. Um as in when, since it had been taken over by the FA in 96. So that was a huge, huge stake in the road where we felt women's football would never go backwards. Um, and investment from the FA was really ramped up. Uh, You got a
0: central contract as well, didn't you? That was really uh, critical. uh, A lot of you did.
1: Central contracts had been formalized. Uh, I think we got we got paid sixteen thousand pounds a year to be a professional footballer, which at that time it was like brilliant. You know, we'd never been paid that much money before to be a footballer, and it allowed us to be either part time or to live frugally and uh, just you know be full time. but at that point I was 27 I didn't did I want to just kind of play football I decided I wanted to continue uh, because by this point I'd come back and joined Everton at 23 Uh, I'd qualified as a teacher uh, in the next couple of years myself um, at John Moores University Your mum's
0: influence in there wasn't it Rach? Your mum's influence
1: (laughs) Yeah qualified late as a teacher she actually owned a health food shop growing up Uh, that was her sort of thing she was very environmentally kind of um, orientated. Um, and uh, But yeah, you know, seeing her going through the, doing the PGCE year and working hard when I was probably only about 10, 10 or 11. Yeah, I think my uncle was a teacher. Uh, I enjoyed sort of that. I wanted to be a PE teacher to give back some of the enjoyment and some of the, I think, I think it's the, what I loved about having football was the structure I had. You know, I knew every week I'd be somewhere else, somewhere exciting. Um, the level I got to meant that every year I was looking forward to flying off to new countries every year, um, looking forward to tournaments in far-flung countries that I would never have dreamt of going to if I hadn't have been part of it. So it was, it was, you know, football had given me a really exciting life and, and enjoyment. And so qualifying as a PE teacher was more to give a little bit back, to, to children for, for that reason.
0: Well, you talk about visiting places you wouldn't normally go. So we've done Alabama, Pittsburgh, and then Iceland when you came back. You spent two northern summers in Iceland. What what was that experience like, though? Oh,
1: it was ace. Um, there was a, a player who played for England called Karen Burke, who I was playing for Everton with at the time. And it was uh, the first summer I went, I think it was you know when, when it was the off-season for Everton. And um, she said... Um, she ran, dead scouse Karen Burke and she ran me up from Iceland and uh, she went Brownie what are you up to and I was like oh I've just I've got a, a, a Saturday job at the local sports centre um, and she went no what you're doing like now this is the Wednesday and she went um, and she said well how about you want to come play for our team and I said oh um, where is it and she went Iceland I was like okay and she said uh, well we need a goalie for Saturday can you come out Friday and I was like yeah, all right. So I did. So I flew out on Friday, arrived Friday night. Um, it wasn't actually the mainland of Iceland. It was a team called Ibervaf, um, or IBV, which I think David James has played for. And is it Herman Haridason? I think he was born in Botania. Um, So it was a, an island with a, a, only five thousand people lived on the island. I flew out there. It was brilliant. My first training session. We ran. We walked up a volcano a grassed volcano and they said right can't spend more than a couple of minutes at the top because it gets really hot underfoot and I was like all right got to the top and it was genuinely really hot at the top and the training session was as we were walking up they're putting slalom poles um up the the grass volcano we got to the top and they said right set off defenders are going to jump slide tackle slalom style down the mountain defenders are going to dive slalom style how I what can get better than this? This is real. So yeah, I spent, um, spent the summer off season as it was playing uh, two, two consecutive summers playing in Iceland and it was amazing. It was light for 22 hours a day. We played golf at 12 o'clock at night just because you can. Um, and uh, in the time that I wasn't playing footy, um, me and one of my mates, Sammy Britton, who also used to play for England and uh, Everton, who I was living with over there, uh, we cut grass on the island, so we were the island's um, the uh, island's gardeners.
0: Well, you sort uh, of cut the verges and all that sort of stuff, yeah. Well,
1: just Pete, No, uh, oh, people... P- oh,
0: P- oh, I see. You went to people's houses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah
1: great. And and ironically, the uh, our manager of the women's team was um, Heimir Helgrimsgottir, who was the uh, manager of men's Iceland team who knocked out England.
0: Really. Brilliant. So
1: Hamer, at the, home of the dentist, yes. I guess. Yes. He his wife Dottie played for was centre half for us and he was our manager.
0: Brilliant. You didn't <laughs> do the you didn't do the thunderclap when you won a game, did you?
1: No, I think I was
0: Now, I mean, I'm guessing you, you had a job. They were all part-time. They all had jobs, your teammates.
1: Yeah, and there was not much else to do on the island. I think something like 80% or 90% of the island's industry was fishing. And processing those fish. So there were some pretty stinky women who showed up for training best. Most of them worked in the in the fish processing factories. So they'd have these like big waterproof dungarees that they would wear. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty grim. They asked me if I wanted to do that or gardening. I was like, gardening, please. God, so.
0: I want to be outside where it's yeah. warm because it was lovely. The weather was pretty good
1: in the summer there, isn't it? Beautiful, and it was lovely. You know, every child who was on uh, school holidays. Their school holidays were spent painting the lines in the road and taking the weeds out the road. It was a very much a sense of community. Um, And it was it was a wonderful way of life because it was so relaxed. There was no rat race. There was no kind of um, there's no real kind of competition. Everybody just lived in harmony. It was genuinely a really refreshing place to be.
0: Oh that's a, that's a brilliant story. Um and then you come back and you you join Everton because Liverpool have been relegated, haven't they? So you've you've done a you've done a Peter Beardsley and, and God rest his soul Gary Ablett and a few others who've played for Liverpool and uh, and my friend Don Hutchison and played for Liverpool and Everton. Yes I
1: have and you know thankfully that went pretty much under the radar cuz football always Pretty low key then. Um, And to be fair, there used to be quite big shifts of, you know, there'd be like seven or eight England players in Everton's team. But then when uh, Everton went down, they'd all moved to Liverpool. or They'd all moved to Doncaster Bells. So it was kind of what happened back then. Uh, So yeah, I joined Everton and that's where I ran out the rest of my career. 11 years there.
0: And you you got a chance 14 years after playing in the FA Cup final, you play for, for Everton against Arsenal. Are you thinking on the eve of the game, Right, it's time to win this now. I've had quite a long story. I've been a 15-year-old who lost on penalties to Croydon in 1995. Now it's time to beat Arsenal and win this.
1: Uh, yeah, just a little bit. And I think that was definitely part of our motivational team talk um, to some of the young guns, as it were, because that's a long stint, you know, to I think at that point we'd come runners up in the league for at least four years, if not five years to to Arsenal. So we were still going in as massive underdogs, but we did have likes of Farrah Williams, uh, Becky Easton, um, Jill Scott, Natasha Dowie. Jodie Handley, Lindsay Johnson, all players who were current England internationals. We had a really strong team. It's just the fact, if you were to Arsenal could pay their players, we didn't. Um, Arsenal could provide lodgings and housing for foreign players to come and play, we couldn't. So all of our players live nearby and could travel to the ground, uh, sorry, to training on a a daily basis. So, you know, in so many ways, we were underdogs going into that. And I think that just consolidated what we wanted to do. We were all, we had to be united on and off the pitch to get a performance out that was going to be a team that was so much better resourced than ours. And, you know, it went to extra time, but that was a magical time for us. Evans with a looping header. Chaplin gets a touch to it. Scott's in there as well. Chaplin again can turn goalwards. Dowie's made the run. And that's just ahead of Natasha Dowie. Is it? Oh, what a finish from Natasha Dowie! It's a terrific goal! And it should win Everton the FA Cup for the first time! Celebrations for the Blues! And it's Natasha Dowie who's done it again.
0: And it was also a magical time to play at the Olympics, wasn't it? I said 82 caps for England, but an appearance at the Olympics. Was that as special as all those 82 caps? Because obviously it was the London Games.
1: Uh, Yeah, and not just, I mean, that being, being the London Games, you've got to like precursor what I say with the fact that we'd we thought we'd qualified for Beijing 2008, uh, our, our performances in 2007 World Cup, which is what Olympic qualification is based on. We got to the quarterfinals. And so we had met the criteria to qualify for Beijing. Uh, and we were told that by a head coach and that was part of us celebrating. Um, and then a few months later, they said, actually, sorry, we've had to give you a spot to Sweden because you're not Team GB, you're England. And because they'd never been in that Uh, predicament before we never you know made qualification criteria um they'd not thought about it and uh and so it was you know for those in 2008 who then didn't have the chance 2007 who didn't have the chance to compete in 2008 it meant so much more to formally have the opportunity to to play in 2012 um for me personally I was 32 at that time um Upon squad selection, there were only two goalkeepers selected out across all the home nations rather than three, as there normally is for a, for a major tournament. Uh, at, at this point, I'd already had five operations on my left knee um, and was struggling. So I decided that uh, I was, I'd was. i been working for the past six years for Everton in the community on um, education projects, going into primary schools and latterly working, uh, teaching the BTEC in a secondary school the last 18 months leading up to the Olympics and it got to that Christmas uh, before the Olympics and I thought if I don't quit uh now I'll never know whether I've given it the best shot to um get myself in that squad that was going to be announced I think in April and so I did I quit work um I just made sure that I did everything I could to um make sure my knee was physically in the best place. So I was training every day, but I was allowed to rest as much as I needed to, to rehab as much as I needed to. Uh, And, you know, that I I couldn't be happier, you know, that things worked out and I did get the chance to, because it wasn't just being there in those Olympics, it was everything building up to it, all the the media, going for your fittings at Loughborough University, getting to meet so many Olympians. But I do remember that moment of when we went to the Olympic Village finally, it was the, the women's team and the men's team went into the Olympic Village and Dame Kelly Holmes welcomed us in a little classroom to kind of induct us into the Olympic Village. And she said to us, she said, whether you win a medal or not, you are and you always will now be an Olympian. And that stuck with me. And, you know, I remember the hairs kind of standing up on my arms and just thinking, this is just unbelievable. Having grown up as a little one, following every Olympics, absolutely, you know, thinking Olympians were superstars that I've managed to actually do this um, was just something so, so special. So I think, you know, from the personal journey I've been on through injuries um, having trauma crucia and having all those knee operations it just it felt like this was a reward for everything that i had been through and the determination and resilience that I felt I'd showed through all of that.
0: It, I mean, I'm lucky, Rachel, I've been to half a dozen Olympics. It's the greatest show on earth. I mean, we love football. We love football, World Cups, men, women. We love it all. But the Olympics is the greatest show on earth. And so, as you say, to say, to say you're cleaning your teeth one morning. I'm an Olympian. That's amazing, isn't it? That really is. I can see why it makes you so proud.
1: Yeah, it, it was so, so special. And, you know, as well, our kind of worldwide rivals, the USA, Germany, France, they'd all, every every four years, we're going to Olympics because it was not a political uh, issue for them. Uh, you know, they make qualify- qualification and they'd go. So it was a major tournament that us as a as a, as a home nation, was missing out on from a competitive aspect as well. So we were proud that we got to do that because we were hoping that, you know, forevermore, we would have an Olympics team. For whatever reason, it didn't happen in 2016, again, for political reasons. And obviously for 2020, that's not happened. So I'm just hoping that the girls get a chance to do something that I felt was probably the most special footballing moments of my career and other people get to experience that because it was, as you said, the best show on earth. The The,
0: the women's team have had up till recently Phil Neville as their coach. How has that changed things in terms of perception or tactics or, or, or in any way at all, having somebody of that high profile from the men's game coaching the England women's team?
1: Yeah, I think it was the the next piece of the puzzle really in continuing the the perception of women's football and the credibility of women's football, you know, everyone in women's football knew that we were we're a professional outfit, we trained as the men did, um, the resources from the FA were getting more and more, uh, but it needed probably someone like him to sort of, to give us that last bit of credibility, and you show that the viewing figures in the World Cup in 2019, people went to the pub to watch the Women's World Cup, and that's just never happened before, uh, and you know, I, I don't think it was if it was coincidence and it's strange coincidence that Manchester United then agreed to have a women's team. Um, you know, I'm sure that he had quite a bit of influence on that. So I think it's been really, really positive. Uh, you know, his coaching skills, I think he's probably improved a lot because that was the question over appointing him. But, you know, I think in the grand scheme of things, his appointment was, was excellent because the timing of it, the influence that it's had on a media and a, um, Um, kind of uh, on the public was the right thing at the right time, but also the right time for him to move on.
0: I was in a pub in Cornwall in the semi-final and it was heaving. You wouldn't have known... If if you'd taken... This picture away and just said it's England in the semi final. Everyone, went, yeah, of course it's England in the semi final. Then you put up and it was England women's team. It was absolutely heaving, and and it was and it was men like me watching it. You know, it wasn't heaving with you know 500 women watching it. It was probably 80 percent men watching it.
1: Yeah, and that's what makes me that that's the proudest thing about knowing that you know everyone from my generation of playing who maybe didn't reap the rewards financially certainly, but even just of exposure wise uh of being a top level footballer we all feel so so proud of where women's football is nowadays and knowing that we've kind of been there and done our bit to to have got that ball rolling i had you know some people think we might be bitter about it i'm certainly not you know i'm so so proud of where women's football is now
0: Rachel, my last question is: is you, you're in a, a a family of sportsmen. I mean, your your husband Ian was a very good golfer himself. I mean, he's now Tommy Fleetwood's caddy, but a very good golfer himself. How how helpful has that been over the years? That you, if you know, you both understand that the space that the other one is occupying, because you're both sports people in your marriage.
1: Absolutely, Mark. Because because um, Ian's only started being a caddy last five years, pretty much just short of that. Um, but for the 10 years we were together before that, he had to endure, you know, me being away for long stints, uh, barely seeing each other. Um, you know, cause I'd, I'd go to work, be at school all day, go straight to training and be back from training at like half 10 at night. And that was the reality of Monday to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, be wherever for a match. And then, you know, I'd be telling him I'm away, we've got away with England for a week next week. And, so he'd, he'd kind of seen what I did and was willing to do, and he supported me in that 100%. Um, and so when the tables turned and I retired from football and then we had our, our um, daughter, Zara, um, she was just short of one when he got the opportunity to to caddy for Tommy. And I was well aware of what the implications were of that as far as him being away. But, you know, I'd had my time being selfish and... Uh, which you have to be to be a sports person. Um, And I knew what it takes to, you have to go wholeheartedly. You have to give it hundred percent in what you're doing. And uh, so, yeah, since he's done that, it's been amazing watching him travel around the world, amazing watching their journey because he wasn't his Tommy's best mate, you know, they they are best friends. So he's emotionally invested in Tommy. Uh, He's not just a caddy. It's not just a job. Uh, and with that, sometimes he comes home, and you know he's a he's an angry man, and I have to kind of, you know, decipher that that's not aimed at me or or us. That that's the nature of sport, and that's how it can make you feel. So as well as the logistical challenges of of having two kids now, and him being away, and. Flouting uh, himself in the sunshine and dealing <laughs> with sunburn and travel uh, issues. And oh, well, I've had to, you know, I've had to stay in the hotel and have food delivered to me. I'm like, mm, I would love that.
0: Yeah, I would love that. Um, yeah. You turn on the telly like when you want to read a book. That. Oh, I'd love that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've, you know, I'm so bored of watching box sets, he said. I'm like, oh, I'd love that. But uh, no, all jokes aside, he's doing a great job and he's, he's been able to pursue, you know, a lifelong dream, which is being on the road. You know, living life as a professional golfer, yeah, he didn't quite make that on tour, but he's got the second best job in the world in, in that respect. And, you know, for all, it, as all-consuming as it is being on the road 40 weeks of the year, pretty much, um, you know, he lives and breathes golf. And I think you have to, to do that job. And, I, you know, it's great that hopefully now the kids are a bit older, lockdown, we can see an end to that potentially, that we'll get to go on the road with him sometime and, and enjoy some of that as well
0: absolutely rachel it's been fantastic talking to you and all your stories really really interesting to hear where your adventure adventure has taken you so far and i know a lot more to come thank you very much indeed
1: thanks mark it's been a pleasure this was a stakhanov production and part of the acast creative network